If you guys are new here, I want to welcome you. My name is Brian, uh, one of the pastors. We're actually going to be starting a brand new series today, going through the book of Ruth. What I want to do right now is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just jump right into this, uh, this great, hopefully encouraging series through really this very small, but uh, very, very potent book. So uh, let's pray. Let's get to work. God, we just give you thanks that we can uh, sit here today. And we can engage your word. We can allow your word to engage us. God, that we can just realize that you're, you're a big God that loves us, that you're a big God that has made provision to conquer every foe that we wrestle against, every foe that is constantly destroying us, loved ones around us, and the ultimate foe being death, God, that you've conquered that even. So I pray right now that you'd help us just to see your overarching purposes throughout history. God, that we would uh, rejoice in that and be transformed and be challenged by that and that our hearts would uh, be full of joy because you're a good God. And that we would uh, find that you are a God that can be trusted, that we can actually trust you with our lives, that we don't have to stand hiding behind fig leaves trying to dodge you, trying to run from you, trying to maybe even create gods in our own image Uh, or try to manipulate you, God. We don't need to manipulate you. We just need to trust you. So help us to see that you're a trustworthy God here today. So we commit this morning and this time in your hands. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be starting into a brand new series, uh, going through this book called Ruth. Uh, Out of curiosity, how many of you have have actually read this book? Raise your hand. Read the book. Okay. Uh, It's a pretty good chunk of you guys. A lot of you haven't. Um, my encouragement to you is for you to read it. It's four chapters. It's very short. Uh, if you are a slow reader like me, it probably take you 20 minutes. Uh, if you're really fast, 10 minutes. It's not very long. Uh, it's written in kind of four distinct chapters. Each chapter kind of has its own unique break. Uh, it's almost uh, written as like a, like a play. Um, one of the things that you'll discover about this book uh, called Ruth is that it's very unique uh, in terms of comparison of other books in the Bible. Uh, probably some of you have heard this before. I'll reiterate it if you uh, have. If you haven't heard it, so it's probably good for you to know this. The Bible is actually sort of a composition of 66 books. It's one book that we identify with one overarching, what we would describe as sort of a, a, a meta narrative or a mega theme. It's all about God's redemptive work throughout all history. It's all from start to finish, all about God and God doing something big, profound, great that's ultimately for His glory, but also for our engagement with that glory, in other words, our joy, our joy in God. Um, But at the same time, there's 66 unique separate books that are written throughout the Bible. Uh, It's written by a lot of different authors. It's written over a period of time, uh, several hundred years. It's written over even on several different continents. And uh, it's really with this one major overarching theme. Now, the book of Ruth, for example, is a perfect example. example of what we would describe as narrative, meaning it's a story, and it's to be read as a story. It's one of the reasons why I would say it'd be very important for you at some point throughout this week to just sit down in one setting and read through the entire book, uh, not in, you know, chapter chunks, not one chapter at a day or something like that. It'd be best if you just read through the whole thing. Like I said, it won't take that long, but I think it will help you to get a good understanding as to what's going on. Um, the Bible's filled with lots of different types of genre, writing genre. For example, what we just finished uh, on Sunday mornings going through the book of Galatians 
is a perfect example of what we would identify as like epistle or didactic, meaning, epistle meaning it's a letter, didactic meaning it's teaching. That Paul the Apostle wrote, writes this letter, uh, it's intended to be read as a means of instruction. So when you read through the book, you realize there's a lot of things that are uh, self um, you know, application oriented, so you can read it and realize Paul's saying do this, you can go out and do that and pr- ask uh, God to help you in those specific areas. For the most part, it's didactic. There are also examples uh, in the Old Testament like the Psalms. Those are songs. It was, the, it was always intended to be in the Bible as sort of a songbook uh, during Jesus' life. Uh, the hymn book or the song book of the early church or even the Jewish people back in the time when Jesus lived would have been the Psalms. Those would have been the songs actually read. So, you know, teaching straight through the Psalms is kind of a different, difficult task because there's lots of different subjects throughout the Psalms. That's the reason for that is because it's intended to be a songbook. We have what's called wisdom literature where, like, for example, Solomon writes and uh, he uses proverbs and things like that. Like one that comes to my mind is, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a sinner returns to his ways. And uh, it's a proverb. It's intended to kind of pass on certain elements of truth and wisdom that guys like Solomon had learned throughout his life. But what's important for us when we read a story like we're reading today, we're going to be taking a look at it over the next several weeks, uh, for example, in the book of Ruth, is that it's narrative. It's intended to be read like a story. And so for sometimes, some people like to take certain books of the Bible and kind of tear them apart and get into them and look at specific words and phrases and paragraphs and try to understand things on sort of a micro level. Um, the story of Ruth is not really intended to be read like that. So that might be difficult for some of you. It's actually intended to be read like a story, like you read it, you engage it, you get into it, you try to understand what the various uh, players are all about in the story or the actors and actresses that are like in the story. And it's written like that. Uh, you'll find it sort of has, it has a prologue and it has an epilogue at the end of it. The prologue starts out by sort of setting the stage. It's written by the narrator. So you'll have a narrator describing in the story. Then you'll have the various uh, players in the story like Naomi and Ruth and um, Elimelech, her husband. He's not in there very big, a very, very long time. Uh, he comes off the stage pretty quickly, um, but it's written like that. So you've got dialogue between the various people in the story. It has this epilogue where it basically kind of sets a trajectory as to what God was doing throughout this great story um, of Ruth. Stories are a really important part of our lives. Um, I think the reality is for us as human beings, I think it's one of the reasons why uh, there's something very humanizing about reading stories. We love stories, whether it be reading books or um, you watch movies. Really, the reason why I think that has such an appeal to us as human beings is because it's all about a narrative. It's all about a story. Uh, if you're a dude, uh, stories you might like uh, are like Lord of the Rings, all right? You, you, you love to just kind of get lost in this epic tale that spans, you know, several hours of long, hard, enduring movie line with fights and battles and you know, love and drama and just murder and blood and death and killing and more murder. You know, you just like that type of stuff. But not just because of the gratuitous nature of like blood and death and guts, but because if you like that, then you can just watch a bad Steven Seagal movie or Van Damme. But the point of the matter is, is that if you really like storyline, you you like something like Lord of the Rings, all right? If, If you're a girl... Uh, Lord of the Rings may not be that much of an appeal to you. You might be more into like Anna Green Gables, all right? You're like, you like the story of this little girl. It's got red hair, you know, not much, 
not that important, not that significant, but she becomes somebody significant, right? She becomes somebody important. You're like, how does he know about this? Because I got girls around me. I've got two daughters and I'm married. It's just like, I've seen this movie many times, way more times than I'd like to even admit. But <laughs> the point of the matter is, is that we love drama. We love the storyline. And the reason why, I'll tell you why, it simply is this. We're image bearers of God. God's all about narrative. God's all about story. God has a story. I mean, we even describe history as being, it's his story. I mean, that's what history is. It's God moving, God working, God doing something. And there's something about that that just really appeals to us. We want to be in a story. I, my, my youngest daughter loves to read. Like, she'll read, I think she's read like two books in one day one time. So she just sits down in her room and, and she gets lost. You can knock on the door, you can talk to her. She doesn't even know that you're talking to her. She's lost in a book. And there's just something about that that we... We, and maybe for you, if at the end of a movie, right, uh, there's just something about at the end of a long, epic tale, you're just like, I wish there was more. And there's something about throughout a movie, one of the reasons why we like movies or like books is we love those moments when it looks like there's lots of chaos going on, and all of a sudden, arising out of the chaos or a lot of, uh, you know, disjointed things going on or plots and subplots throughout the story, and all of a sudden, something happens or a line comes into the movie or into the book, or into the story, that just everything, like five or six pieces all come together, like, no way. I, I, for me, for me, you know when that was? I'm your father. <laughs> right? I'm just like, no way. You're kidding me. Like, ah, that makes so much sense. Like, everything is right in the world. Although, it's not right yet, because I don't know where the end of the story is going to go. So, we, we, we want to be a part of a story. And in a very real sense, that's what the Bible's about. That's what makes Ruth so amazing, the story of Ruth. It's, it's a story of, of God coming in the scene and God moving through someone's life, someone's life who's really not altogether different from ours and the types of things that go on. Um, throughout the book of Ruth, I actually want to challenge some of your guys' uh, pre-assumed ideas about the book. Here's what I mean. A lot of times, um, in fact, a lot of commentaries I've read, a lot of things I've studied over the years, I think for me, for many, many years, I used to think of the book of Ruth as being like this, you know, epic tale of like love and romance. And, you know, it's probably one of the reasons why it wasn't too intriguing to me. I'm like, all right, I don't, I'm not too into that type of stuff. I'll like, I'll read Judges when people get killed and you know, there's like battles going on, guys sticking daggers in someone's stomach and blood spilling out. It's like very graphic and I'm like, I'll read that book, but I'm not too into like the whole love affair thing between Ruth and this guy Boaz, you know, and sometimes we thought about the book of Ruth as being like that, I know I did, I think the more I've studied, the more I've realized, really, in, in, at the end of the day, the book of Ruth is, is, it is a love story, but it's not the type of love story that most of us tend to think it is, most of us, I think, are prone to think that the book of Ruth is about this amazing love story between Ruth and this guy named Naomi, and the reality is, uh, some of those, the storyline begins to break, I'm sorry, back up, back up, uh, theologically that gets things a little bit correct here, this love affair between Ruth and Boaz, all right, all right, there we go, I got that, all right, uh, this, love, this love story between Ruth and, and Boaz, and so, but the reality is, 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 I would go so far as to say that's actually a subplot to the story. The real story in the book of Ruth is actually about Naomi. 
It is a love affair. It, it is a story of love, but it's a story of God's incredible love being demonstrated to Naomi. And I'll show you why I believe that in a moment here. But I, I believe it is a love story, but it's about God's incredible love for this girl, this lady named Naomi, that everybody has sort of cast off. Uh, her life has been consumed by difficulty and hardship and disappointment. And people typically would just write her off as a bitter old woman. Nick, God hasn't. In fact, part of the subplot, this is where Ruth comes in the story, God uses this girl Ruth to actually leverage blessing into, Ruth, into uh, Naomi's life. Ruth actually becomes part of the subplot to leverage God's incredible affection and love and to demonstrate it's sort of this tangible picture of God's just tangible love to this lady who's gone through such bitterness. But again, the story really kind of begins to shape up and begin to be for us kind of this picture of God's larger, bigger purposes, even through suffering, ultimately setting out a trajectory as to how, is, how God is ultimately going to use suffering, or to use another phrase, which I'll introduce you guys to in a second here, uh, explain a little bit more, this idea of God's bitter providence, God's difficult circumstances that take place in our, in our lives, how God uses those things for his glory. So with that being said, what I want to do is I want to read actually the first five verses, and I want to begin to kind of break down for you some of the examples of God's bitter providence in Ruth's life, uh, or Naomi's life, I should say, in the book of Ruth, and how this sort of all begins to work together in a way that brings God glory and that brings Naomi great joy. Verse 1 says this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem in Judea, or in Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, and they were Ephethites of Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there for about 10 years. Both Malon and Chilion died, and the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And that's basically the introductory comments uh, by the narrator. And uh, next week, we'll kind of begin to get a little bit more into the actual a dialogue going on between Naomi, Ruth, and whatnot, uh, some of the other players within the story. But I want to just mainly focus on uh, sort of these introductory comments of which the narrator brings to our attention so that we can pay attention to them. One of the things that, one of the best ways that, like I said, we can just summarize what was going on here in Naomi's life is really what can just simply be defined as sort of a bitter providence. Um, the word providence is kind of a word that oftentimes the Puritans like to use, and it was the idea to describe God's actual involvement in people's lives. The idea or the notion of a bitter providence is sort of the idea that sometimes when God works in our lives, it's not always apparent that it's good. There's going to be times and occasions in which God's working things in our lives, in which things are happening in our lives, in which we find ourselves in the middle of incredible pain. Things are difficult, they're hard, they're, they're frustrating, they're not the way that we expected, it's not the, the, the path that we had hoped was going to be taking place, and we can describe it as bitter. This is exactly the way uh, Naomi describes it and identifies it. In chapter 1, take a look at about verse 20, 
She is on her way back from the region of Moab into the area of Bethlehem. Uh, ironically, the word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Uh, the irony of the story is that there's a famine in the house of bread. So this place that God uh, ordained to be a place of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, favor, of um, food, ultimately becomes a place of famine. And Ruth, uh, or Naomi, is forced to leave the country several years earlier. And while she's away in this foreign region called Moab, she encounters some of the most difficult, most bitter seasons of her life. Um, and we don't know exactly how short of the period of time it was. It just, all we know is it just came upon her immediately. And all we know is what the narrator tells us, which basically he just simply gives it to us in kind of bulleted points. And that's about it. It doesn't describe to us anything about it. He just simply says, and her husband died. And by the way, her sons died. And by the way, she had no children or no offspring. And uh, there was a famine. And there was just like one tragedy after the next to sort of befell this woman, Naomi. And her name, Naomi, literally means sweetness uh, or it means pleasant. Her husband, uh, his name, Elimelech, literally means my God is king. El is the Hebrew word for God. Melech is the Hebrew word for king. God is king. Uh, she had two sons. Uh, one of her sons' name was Malon, and the other name was Chilion. Uh, the name Malon literally means sickly, and the name Chilion means more sickly, all right? So some of you all are like into like naming your kids after Bible people, and uh, just don't ever, ever name your kids Malon or Chilion. It's like if your kids are born, it's just a horrible names, all right? It's like when your kid's born and he's got sniffles, you're like, I ain't going to call them sniffles, all right? Or got bird flu. I'm going to call him bird flu pandemic or I'm going to call him pneumonia. That's going to be the name of my boy. There he is, pneumonia. Like, he's just sickly, all right, all the time, sick. He's coughing up something. He's just nasty little kid, all right? And that's kind of, they named him after sometimes circumstances of the birth and just like, yeah, so just don't name your kids Malin or Chilin. So anyways, she goes out into Moab. She's on her way back into the region of Bethlehem. It tells us in verse 20, it says, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. The name, or the word Mara literally means bitterness. She says, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? And the Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought this calamity upon me. So you kind of get a little bit of a glimpse into Naomi's soul, into what she's feeling. She's, she's a woman that literally has felt a death blow come against her life. Incredible suffering has hit her and just befallen her life, and it's just left her completely destroyed. There's at least seven different ways in which God's bitter providence came in her life. I'm going to go through these very quickly. The first of which is that she lived during the dark time of what's called the judges. Take a look at verse 1 again. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. Um, that's all the first verse tells us. Uh, again, the writer just sort of expects us to know what the judges were all about. So why don't you do this? Turn in your Bibles back one page to Judges chapter uh, 21, the very last verse of the book of Judges. I'll just read this, and here's what it says. It says, in those days, there was no king. This is the time of the judges. There was no king in all of Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's basically uh, from the period of the time of Joshua which was around 1300 B.C. to around the time of 1000 B.C. So almost a period of 300 years uh, was this period of time that we would call the judges. Very dark, very bleak, very divided period of time. There was no king that sort of unified the people of Israel. The people of Israel were kind of living in various little tribes, 
kind of scattered all abroad. It was sort of a fend for yourself type of a thing. Whoever had the biggest sword, whoever had the biggest muscle, basically dominated and won during the time. And yet God oftentimes spoke and came into the scenario and he raised up these people that would rise up to try to encourage the people of Israel to look to God, to trust God. And these people were called the judges. Very dark, difficult period of time for the people of God to live in. This was the context of which uh, Naomi was born and which she had lived. Uh, the second thing we noticed is that she lived through a famine. Now, the reality is that most of us here, probably I would say all of us, have absolutely no idea what a famine is. I mean, we know about it because we saw it on a movie once, but none of us actually know what a famine is. What we know is gluttony. That's what we know. We don't know what famine is. We don't know what it means to actually go without any food for a prolonged period of time, maybe a week, maybe a month, um, without any type of food. We just don't know what that means. We've got grocery stores we go to. So for us, this word famine is a very disconnected type of a word for us. It doesn't have much of a meaning to us. But for people back years ago, even for people in certain parts of the world today, the word famine conjures up lots of emotions and feelings and pain and, and difficulty and hardship in which people just feel absolutely vulnerable and without any help. Um, this is a very agrarian culture. Uh, they were dependent upon the rain. When there was no rain, they didn't have crops. They not having any crops. They weren't able to have any food. And so this oftentimes led people to needing to basically fend for themselves. And so uh, they catch word. The third thing that we notice in the text, that not only is that they live during the dark times of the judges, not only did they live through a famine that was very hard, third thing that we see is that they were forced to move away from the promised land. Uh, and I would identify this as almost sort of like an exile. They, they, they were forced to leave the promised land. Um, and again, there's been a lot of speculation. I've even heard you know, commenters, commentators you know, rebuke Elimelech saying he should have been taking better care of his family and just stayed there and trusted God. Well, maybe Elimelech was trying to trust God. Maybe he was trying to protect his family by moving them to the region of Moab. Maybe he felt, you know, God can be there. We just don't know. There's a lot of things that the, uh, the writer or the narrator here of the story just leaves out because they're non-essentials to the story. And so what we do know is that they had to move. Anytime you got to move, um, it can be a difficult thing. If you move because you got a new house and you're excited about moving there, that's one thing. But if you have to move because you're forced to move, that's very difficult. My wife and I, my family, we know about this. The first, uh, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years or so that we lived here, we were actually moving on an average of every two and a half years. It's just the way it was. We hated it. I mean, by the time our kids were getting a little bit older, having to move just was horrible. Every once in a while, we got stuck with landlords, landladies that were nut jobs, and it was just, it was, it was made things difficult, uh, having to actually, const, you know, constantly clean things up, move things, reorder things, reorganize things, um, and then some, it costs a lot of money to do that. It's very taxing. Remember the last time we moved into the house that we're in right now, we've been here for a little over four years, it's actually the longest time we've ever lived in a house in San Luis, and uh, I just remembered moving in, and I just this word that just kept coming into my mind was, was haggard. That's how I felt. I just felt haggard, completely destroyed, just at the end of myself, physically. It was very difficult. Well, Ruth, uh, Naomi, had to move with her husband and her sons. They moved into this region of Moab. Again, another type of calamity or bitter providence that had befallen her. The fourth thing, again, it just simply says it very quickly, very simply this, her husband dies. Just, just so fast. I mean, for us in our culture, we can read over that and somehow very quickly think of, you know, other means of hope. Because in, I think in our mind, we're trained to think, well, you know, do you cash in on the, uh, 
the life insurance policy, right? I mean, quarter of a million dollars. You'll be fine. You sustain you until you're able to get married again, or you can pay off your mortgage. That's just not the way that it worked way back then. If your husband dies, so does all of your livelihood. It's a big deal, and Naomi would have felt this incredible pain. Uh, the next thing we see is that we're told uh, that basically her sons marry these Moabite women. Now, this is really difficult. This no doubt would have been a painful thing for her. Even though the Bible in no way um, directly condemns the Jews actually marrying the Moabites, um, it doesn't like straight up forbid it. Uh, it just simply gives picture that it's not probably a good idea. Years later, during the time of Nehemiah, actually, it's kind of an interesting story. I'm not going to read you the verse, but Nehemiah chapter 13, it basically describes Nehemiah actually beating people up, pulling their hair out, kicking them in the stomach because they're getting married to Moabite women. I mean, can you imagine that? You're like, that's the Bible? Like, yeah, it's in the Bible. Nehemiah is going just berserk beating people up because they started dating a Moabite woman, all right? Because there was sort of this stigma in their mind, you just, you just don't hang out with the Moabites. Part of the reason for that, probably one of the main reasons for that, is who the Moabites were. Um, the Moabites actually were a tribe of people that came from the lineage of Lot. You guys remember Lot? He was the nephew of Abraham. Well, once, um, you know, at some point, Lot had gotten seduced, as ironic and as crazy and as disgusting as it may seem, by his daughter, um, that through an incest incestual relationship, Lot fathered a, a, a child through his daughter, and this became the Moabite people. And, and so there was always a stigma on these Moabite people that you just, you just don't have dealings with them, you don't hang out with them. And so for, I would imagine for Naomi... To think that her beloved sons are actually going to end up getting married to a Moabite woman was just absolutely appalling to her. I mean, I think for every parent, every parent wants the best for their children. They want one day for their children to marry somebody that loves them, is able to honor Jesus and honor them and respect them and treat them with dignity and value and respect and honor the parents and the have a good relationship like that. But the thought of actually a parent watching a child go out and marry, particularly in Naomi's case, Moabites, was, was probably very difficult. Again, the, the author, the narrator, tells us nothing about the, the pain or the emotional uh, difficulty that this may have uh, posed her. Um, the sixth thing that we see is, again, it just simply tells us in narrated fashion, her sons die. That's it. Her two sons die. And then seventh, we're told that she was with no children to carry on her family, family name. This was, this was blow upon blow upon Naomi's life. Difficult time she's living in, goes through a famine, has to move her entire family. Her husband dies. Her sons marry Moabites. Her two sons die. Her two sons die without leaving her any grandkids, which basically in that culture amounts to this. She's a woman who has absolutely nothing. She's completely vulnerable. She's completely unprotected. She has absolutely no means, no way to which to be covered, to be protected. No means by which to have financial support. No means by which to get food. No means by which to get a house or covering over her head. She's completely vulnerable in a vulnerable state. This is Naomi. This is where she's at. Finally, 
she would be and would have been completely stripped of her entire identity. See, here's the deal. In that culture, a woman, for the most part, and again, this is not God-imposed. This is, in fact, what you find in the Bible. Sometimes people look at the Bible and say the Bible is very anti-women. It's not anti-women. In fact, the Bible, out of almost any book throughout all history, actually gives more value and more place to women than any other book. I'll give you an example of it. Sometimes people look at the Bible and they're just like, well, the Bible talks about how women are like just one woman of a harem. You know, why? You know, why just one woman of like six wives or something like that? Why does the Bible talk about women having like 12 kids? And See, that's very dehumanizing for a woman or very oppressive for a woman. But here's the thing you got to understand. For a woman to actually have a husband was actually God's provision to provide for her. Having children was also another means of God's provision to provide for her. How? Because, you know, let's say you have 12 kids. Do you know that back then, you know, you might lose a good percentage of your kids? Sometimes through childbirth. Sometimes before, you know, they're, they're age five. You can just, a lot of kids will die. So the idea of wanting to have a lot of children was not necessarily an oppressive thing. And again, the whole idea of harems, a guy maybe marrying many women, uh, some, to us, it looks very repulsive, and how can they do that? But again, look at it this way. you got to look at it from the perspective of that culture. In that day, to be a woman without having a husband meant that you were completely vulnerable. No one's protecting you. No one's looking out after you. No one's taking care of you. So the means by which, the means of grace by which you would be protected in a culture that devours women is a husband comes in and takes you. Protects you, provides for you, gives you money, gives you a house. But see, here's Naomi. She has nothing. So we can look at that and be like, that's very oppressive. How can that happen? The point that I want to make before I even move on is this. Is that before you look at the Bible and you start wanting to accuse it of certain things, just understand the context. And the other thing I think that's important to understand is that don't just simply assume because we live in the enlightened 21st century where liberation, we've liberated women, women are free. The reality is that women, even in our culture, aren't as free as we think they are. I'll give you an example. We can look at a culture a thousand years ago and say, how oppressive was that culture? They were always wanting women to just have babies, and that was a horrible thing, because if you didn't have babies, or if you weren't fertile, or if you couldn't have a child, uh, then you were looked down upon, and you were frowned upon, and People suspected all sorts of horrible things about you and assumed horrible things about you. How oppressive of a culture is that? The reality is, is that we can critique that and criticize it all we want, but make sure that you look at our culture through the same lens. Because we live in a culture that has its own types of oppressive behavior, for example, in the, even in this case, like looking at women. We have a culture today that may not look at women and say, your identity is found in how many kids you have. That's not our culture. But we have a culture that says your real identity is found in how good-looking you are, how thin you are, you know, how small your waistline is, how beautiful you are, how many boyfriends you can get, or how many marriages you can obtain, how many types of good glances and looks you can get. That's very oppressive. Because think about women that can't live up to that or don't have that or always looking at themselves and not feeling they're very beautiful. That is oppressive. That's a cultural oppressive type of a nature that gets placed upon people. We might look at it with men and say a man's identity might be in his job or in his career. 
that he wants to have a particular career. And so we have these cultural ideas or pressures of which to perform. So you've got to work really hard to get this job so that you can get this car because, uh, you know, your car, your house, these are indicators of how important you are. But what happens if you lose your job? Then you lose the ability to pay the mortgage on your house. And you lose your house or you lose your car. Now where's your identity? It's gone. And that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a heavy price to pay. But this is exactly where Naomi was at. She had lost everything. She was stripped of her entire identity. This is God's dark providence. God's bitter providence. Let me put it this way. We wrestle with this. And the reason why we wrestle with this is we oftentimes try to make sense of our suffering. It's a normal, common, human thing to try to understand why do we suffer? Why do these things happen to us? And oftentimes the presupposition is this, is that I'm good, I'm a just person, I'm nice, I'm kind, I help other people out. Why do bad things happen to good people in particular? Why are bad things happening to me, if I'm a good person. And the presuppositions that we oftentimes have and the accusations which we bring in that or out of that argument is we look to God and we begin to formulate our own false conclusions and oftentimes the most popular ones are this. Either one, God is all loving, but he's impotent. God really loves, he really cares, he really wants our best, but at the same time, God just doesn't have power. He can't help us. He doesn't know how to help us. He may want to help us, but he just can't. Or the flip side of it is that maybe God is all powerful, but he's really not all good. So the flip side of this is that maybe God has the ability to do anything and everything that he really wants to do, but he's really not kind. He's really not loving. And so he sometimes allows certain calamity to befall us or come into our lives or to kind of destroy us or shake us. And it's sort of God's way of kind of getting laughter, getting kicks with some sort of sick sense of humor, and that's kind of how we oftentimes can view God in one of those two types of categories. But the picture that the Bible is going to paint and portray for us about God is that God is both good and that he's both sovereign, both powerful. And that really what we're going to see in the book of Ruth uh, is that God is actually bringing Naomi through this, this dark season of bitter providence because really, at the end of the day, what God's doing is he's working out this unbelievable course of action to bring about her deep, lasting joy in God. I mean, what if, what if the real reason for circumstances and calamity and hardship in your life is actually God's means by which to bring about your deeper, longer-lasting joy? What if that's really what's happening? What if that's really God's true intention? What if you don't have enough information right now to even judge rightly, and yet we're always making judgment? What if one of these days we're going to look back and we're going to feel really ashamed because we said a lot of things, thought a lot of things, accused a lot of things that were just simply off base? I think the Bible is going to tell us that that's exactly the way we most oftentimes find ourselves. Is that we don't judge rightly. We don't judge correctly. We don't have all the information. It's almost like we look at our lives and we're like, how could all this be happening? We're only in chapter three of a 25 chapter book. You haven't gotten to the end yet. You have no idea where you're even at. And yet we make all these accusations, we accuse God 
of being evil, wicked, horrible, malicious, capricious. And yet in reality, we just don't know. We don't have enough info. We haven't gone far enough. We haven't progressed far enough. We haven't read far enough. But this is the beautiful thing about the book of Ruth, is we have this whole book in four short chapters we can see from start to finish God's panoramic view of what he's doing. It's what's absolutely amazing about the book of Ruth. The Bible actually gives us these little snapshots. Uh, another great example of this in the book of Genesis about the life of a guy by the name of Joseph. We're not looking at that today, but I would encourage you to maybe read that, about that, and you'll kind of get another picture of this. But let's go back to Ruth, because the picture I think that God is trying to portray for us in Ruth, in the book of Ruth, is that God truly loves Naomi, that she has, she's not cast off, that God doesn't despise her. But in fact, in reality, even though she lives in a culture that might look at her and say, my gosh, this woman has literally become stripped and bereft of any type of identity. She's lost everything. That in reality, what God's doing is he's setting the stage in Naomi's life through this bitter providence, through this bitter, difficult hardship in Naomi's life to fix her up for even a deeper, more lasting joy. It's amazing when you begin to think about that. Because if, 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 is that not possible, what God's doing in our lives? He's actually setting us up for a more profound, deeper, lasting joy. Let me give you an example of this. If indeed Naomi is stripped from the ability of being a mom, stripped from the ability of being a wife, and in the culture, the culture might judge her or condemn her as being, you know, you've lost everything, you have no identity, you have no place in our culture, you have no place in our town, in our city, God's hand is against you. Please leave us. We don't want bad luck to befall us too like it's befallen you. If, if indeed that would be sort of the sentiment of sort of like Job's comforters kind of putting their hands over their mouth, looking at Job and thinking, I don't want what anything that you have because it could be really bad. God's hand is against you. You've lost your identity. We don't like the new identity that you've adopted and it's not good. Is, is it possible that what God is actually doing is he's working a work in, in Naomi's life to give her a more longer-lasting identity? See, the, the Bible's going to say stuff like this, that God actually really cares about the types of sin that we find ourselves engaged by. Because he actually cares about the fact that if we put our hope and our heart in things that are fragile and that break, which is what all sinful things do, then when the things that we put our hope and find our security in, when they break, guess what happens? We break too with it. And that's the, the story of the Bible is that God actually loves us. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to bring us into a place where we would place our faith and our confidence in him. And he never breaks. See, you can't take that type of security away. You say, you can even kill me, and you don't take God away. You actually bring me to God by taking my very life. You can't conquer somebody like that. And this is the story of, of Ruth. The story of Naomi's life is that God is actually working behind the scenes through this dark, bitter providence to bring about something great. So with that being said, I want to wrap this up very quickly and really try to look at a couple things 
that we should know when we find ourselves in the middle of what I identify as God's bitter providence. The first thing that we need to know is that God is good. We have to hold on to this. There's a lot of things that we don't know. And if you look at the facts, is that when we spend a lot of times looking at our lives and difficult circumstances that happen in our lives, we spend a lot of time asking the question, why? Why did this happen? How did this happen? How did this take place? We ask all these questions, and we will probably never get answers to those things. Um, but the reality, what we need to do is we need to go back to what we do know, what we do know, what the Bible is going to communicate to us and tell us. That the first and foremost, the Bible is going to tell us that actually God is good. The second thing I'll tell you what it is, we'll get to in a second here, is that God is sovereign. And that the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God are, are, not, are, are not separate, meaning they, they, they're not mutually opposed to each other. They don't contradict one another. The storyline of the Bible is that God is all good and that God is all sovereign. And that these two things are not opposites, but they actually come together. They work together. And really what God's attempting to do in our lives through his goodness and through his sovereignty is to leverage our hearts off of the things that we are trying desperately to please us and bring us happiness because God says, look, if you put your happiness or put your faith or your confidence in anything except me, it will let you down. And when it breaks, you will break too. And God says, I love you too much to let you break with it. So God is working hard to pair up, to match up our pleasure or our joy to sync that up with God's glory. Let me give you an example. Oftentimes, the things that we find in this life that are joyful, or that bring us some sort of momentary pleasure, how many of those things are actually things that we can say actually bring glory to God? Not a lot of them. But we're like, I love it. It feels really good. Yeah, but the problem is, is if it's not something that brings glory to God or brings honor to God is really what we mean, then what that means is that there's an expiration date on that thing. There's an expiration date on that thing. You don't see it. You don't know where it's at. You don't know how to locate it. You don't know when it's going to crash and burn and break. But trust me, trust the Bible that there is an expiration date. It will break. And when it breaks, you'll break with it. And yet, so what God is constantly doing is to align our joy with, with his glory so that the joy that we find is something that is lasting. That won't break. And that's what God's doing. That's the story of the book of Ruth. So the first thing we need to see is that God's good. I want to give you a couple examples of, of how God demonstrates his goodness real quickly. I want to go through this fast. The first thing that we notice is that God gives Naomi this everlasting identity. And we looked at this a little bit. But again, she's ripped, uh, stolen. Everything is taken away from her. She has nothing. But God was at work in trying to restore and repair that to her. How? Because behind the scenes, God is doing this unbelievable work of restoring her, renewing her. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a child. At the end of the day, really, it's almost as if God himself becomes Naomi's husband. It's amazing. It's almost as if God himself just says, look, you're a single mom who's lost everything. You've lost your own sons, your husband, your widow. You've lost your own children. You're, you're, you're you're, you've lost everything. You have no identity. It's as if God just says, I'll give you identity. I'll, I'll be your protector. You're vulnerable. You're subject to all sorts of uh, potential. 
wounds and hurts and difficulties, and God says, I will be your protector. I'll shield you. So God gives her this everlasting identity. Uh, The second thing we see is that God gives Naomi a son. Uh, We see this actually in verse 5 of uh, Ruth 1. It says, this Melon and Killian died, so the woman was left without her two sons. The word that's actually used there for son is is a lot of commentators identify. It's kind of a unique word for son. Apparently, there's a handful of different words that can be used uh, for the type of age of son that she had. Her sons were older. They were married for 10 plus years. So you can imagine they might be in their 30s, somewhere around there. But the word that's used there, yaled, is the actual Hebrew word. It's a word that identifies like a little boy, a little kid, little baby. And so it's an interesting thing. It's almost like saying that, and Naomi lost her little babies, her children. Kind of a unique phrase. But in the Hebrew, if you were Jewish and you're reading this in the Hebrew, uh, you would recognize the very last chapter of the entire book. Again, kind of like bookends. Uh, you have sort of the, the prologue. You have the epilogue. Um, the prologue setting the stage for all of that's about to come to play into the actual book with you know, Ruth and Boaz and all the rest of the thing that kind of follows all the different types of subplot throughout the book. But then you have the epilogue where God brings about the sense of restoration. And we have this great verse where it says in Ruth 4, because the only other time that particular word yelled uh, uh, actually appears is in Ruth chapter 4, verse uh, 16. It says this, um, Boaz took Ruth. She had a son. In verse 16, it says, and Naomi took the child. It's the word yelled. She took the child. She took this little baby. Her little baby. And it goes on to say this in verse 17. And the, woman, uh, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, get this, this is amazing. A son has been born to Naomi. Why, why Naomi? Because like I said, the story's about Naomi. It's a story of God involving himself in the life of a woman who's been completely destroyed. Just completely destroyed by sin completely destroyed by difficulties in this world, yet behind all of that, God was working and moving. God does not create sin. God does not initiate sin. God does not author sin. But God is behind the scenes using sin, working through sin, sinful lives, broken lives to bring about these broken pieces back into some sort of symmetry and order and orderliness. That's what God's doing. That's, that's how God is actually showing and demonstrating his grace to this, this woman by saying, look, you've lost everything. You don't have a son, but I'm going to give you a new son. And, and the beauty of this, it goes on to say this. Um, I'll, I'll read the next one. The last one is this, that God also gives Naomi a redeemer and a king because the son that she has or the son that's basically given to her, and I'll begin to explain as we look through this book um, how this son is actually come to be identified as Naomi's son, and not so much as Ruth, Ruth's, even though it is Ruth's son. Um, I'll tell you why that is the place uh, it is uh, later on when we get there. But the point of the matter, for the sake of the story, this is about God restoring to Naomi all the stuff that has just transpired and difficult providence and bitter providence that's happened in her life, because it's a, a picture of God restoring that which is broken. The third thing is we see God gives Naomi a redeemer and a king. Uh, Ruth chapter 1 verse 2 is going to identify that this group of people were um, Ephrathites living in Bethlehem. It's an interesting phrase. Um, The reason why it's interesting is because we're going to be told a little bit later that there's going to be another king that comes out of Ephrathah, Judah, uh, or Bethlehem, King David. That's where he's going to come from. 
Um, and yet the story even gets bigger and better and more profound as it sort of situates itself in the larger meta-narrative of the Bible itself. Because the point of the matter, I think, that God's trying to say is this, is that, look, Naomi's lost everything. Um, the Bible, or the, the book of Ruth starts out by telling us that in the days of Ruth and Naomi and whatnot, there was no king. There was no king. But the story actually ends in the epilogue. And there's a king. King David. That actually part of God's restorative process was to take this woman who was living in a time where there was no king, nothing but chaos, nothing but disorderliness, nothing but disintegration. And God says, I see the pain. I care about it. I care about your pain. I care about your calamity. Everyone else might call you a cast off or someone who has lost an identity. God says, you haven't lost an identity. I'm giving you a new identity, a lasting identity. But it's an identity that will ultimately be connected to a king that will come out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, specifically a particular region. And then we come to the New Testament. This is where it gets absolutely amazing. Because the amazing thing that I look about in this story is that Naomi probably died before David was ever born. Which is incredible to me because she had no idea that all of the bitter providence that she had gone through in her life, all the hardships, the difficult things that she had endured in her life, she had no idea that all of this was sort of God setting the stage in her life, preparing the pieces, moving them together so that the greatest king of all Israel would come out of her lineage in spite of losing her sons and her husband and her identity. And it's God's way of saying, no, no, no. I haven't forsaken you. I haven't forgotten you. I'm still at work. She had no idea that King David, the greatest king, was going to come out of her lineage. But Matthew in the New Testament tells us this, referring to Jesus. He says, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And this is a promise looking forward to the greatest king, not David, but Jesus, the Messiah. So this is how amazing this gets, that God says, look, Naomi, all the suffering, all the hardship, all the calamity, all the bitter providence that you've endured in your life wasn't for nothing. The pain you endured, the hardship that you endured, the suffering you endured was, was me working behind the scenes, cutting things away, that yes, there was pain. Does God cause pain? Yes. The answer of the Bible has to be emphatically, yes, God causes pain. But make sure you understand the pain that God causes is not the pain of an angry, bitter God who is defiantly trying to destroy you, but the pain of a surgeon. Or the pain, like Jesus would say, of a vine dresser cutting away, purging away broken branches that are fruitless. Why? So that you and your life would experience more profound fruit. God causes pain. Do you have a theological category for that? Do you? Because we live in a world today that just doesn't want to think in that term. We think, how could God cause pain? If he's a good God, why would a good God cause pain? Let me restate that. If you had a good surgeon, would a good surgeon cause pain? For even a better purpose. Of course. He'd actually be a bad surgeon. You're like, I got a tumor. Can you operate? Mm, 
Will that hurt you? I think it'll hurt me really bad. Then no. Really? I don't want a tumor. I don't want to hurt you. You're a bad surgeon. I'll go somewhere else. But a good surgeon is one who would say, I'll inflict pain, but for a greater joy. Do you have a theological category for that in your life? Do you? The story of Naomi in the book of Ruth is the picture of a God that wounds, but when he wounds, the same hands that wound are also the same hands that heal. But it's not arbitrary wounding. It's wounding with a unique purpose to move things around to bring about a greater expansion of joy. Do you believe that about God? The second thing that I would say is that not only one, you have to see God as good, but secondly, you've got to see God as sovereign. And what I mean by that, well, I should say what I first of all don't mean by that, what I don't mean is I don't mean what sort of a cruel Calvinistic mentality might manipulate or destroy in terms of the idea of a sovereignty of God, that God sort of stoically, coldly causes pain and hurt because up there somewhere in heaven, he just says, I decreed it, and therefore I stand by it, and therefore nothing will change. God is not a cold God. He's not a cold God that just inflicts pain. But the pain that comes is a pain that God is totally in control of, totally in control of everything. Do we have categories to think about that in our lives? The Bible is all about this. The greatest example of this, and I'll wrap it up with, with this, is that when Jesus died on the cross, after he rose again from the dead, but the period of time of three days between crucifixion and resurrection, if you were to sit down with Peter, interview him, and ask him, Peter, what happened? Tell us a little bit about what your understanding of the sequence of events. Peter would say something like this. You know, we thought Jesus was the Messiah. You know, we gave up everything. We sold everything. We left our businesses, our jobs, our livelihood to follow him. And he died. We're still questioning this. We don't understand why this would have happened. Why would God allow all of this to happen? I mean, he seemed great. He helped a lot of people. I don't know why all these things would have come to such a horrific end. But what I want you to see is that the resurrection changed everything. Because 50 days later, Peter is preaching a sermon. And listen to how Peter actually changed his theological, um, his theological central theme of the way he viewed everything. Listen to what Peter's going to say. In Acts chapter 2, he says this, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God whom you killed. Did you hear that? So Peter changed this understanding. He's like, look, the reality is this, is that God was in control of everything that happened, even though, even though it was your hands that killed him. Even though the blood's on your hands, you guys are guilty, you have to pay for that, either by some sort of judgment before God, or by you accepting what Jesus did by being judged on behalf for you, that you'll pay for that. But he says, God was at work sovereignly doing something behind the scenes. And he goes on and he finishes with this unbelievable thought in verse 26. He says, but God raised them up. He says, therefore my heart, just like David said, is glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. So here's what Peter's going to tell you. That 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, here's what Peter would say. Is that 
Yes, Jesus suffered. It was horrible. I watched it. It was the most unbelievably, excruciatingly painful thing just anybody could have ever gone through. I watched it up close. I had front row seats. I don't ever want to see another crucifixion. Peter would say it was horrible, but God was working through that whole thing. Why? Because he was actually setting the stage for a joy to go out to all the ends of the earth. Do we see our suffering like that? I know it's hard. It's almost impossible sometimes. The problem is that we look at things too close up front. We just, all, like I said, we are trying to analyze a 27-page book of our lives, and we're only on chapter three and a half. And we make all these false assumptions as to where everything is going. We just don't know. We don't see. This is why we have to bank on what we do know, what we do understand. The Bible is going to tell us time and time again that God is both good and God is both sovereign. And he's always working these things together for our good, to those who trust God, to those who love him. So the point of the matter is this, is that if you don't trust God, if you don't love God, I would urge you to see the goodness of God. See the fact that God is sovereign and trust him for what's happening in your life. It's the Bible's definition that we look at the story in the life of Naomi is that God was always orchestrating every bitter providence in her life to set her up for her deepest, most profound sense of joy in God. One of my favorite theologians, a guy by the name of John Owen. He was this amazing guy. He lived in England, lived during a time of a guy by the name of Oliver Cromwell. And some of you guys might know who Oliver Cromwell was. He was sort of a general to the king. And uh, he went around slaughtering a lot of people, killing people. But um, he had sort of adopted this guy, John Owen, to kind of be sort of his personal like pastor, traveled with him. And, and um, so they went up to the Scots and they slaughtered the Scots and the Irish. And then you know, John Owen would come back and preach to the troops, and he'd be like, you guys are bringing, you know, this revelation of Jesus as like a lion. What about bringing Jesus like a lamb? You know, all you guys want is blood. You need to see the fact that Jesus came to shed his blood for them too. And so this guy was an amazing guy. He wrote volumes and volumes of volumes of theological works that are still uh, some of the best stuff that have ever been written to date, 400 years later. Guys, the guy was a mastermind, a genius. Um, he had a friend that was in prison, and he had become very well known throughout Parliament, uh, John Owen, and um, everybody knew him. He spoke regularly for the Parliament, parliament there in England, and uh, his good friend that was in prison, he tried repeatedly to try to get him freed from prison, and it just it never worked. It never happened. No matter how much clout he had, no matter how much ability he had, no matter how many people he had known in high places, uh, he'd worked to try to get his good friend freed from prison, who'd been in prison for many, many years, and it just never worked. But while this guy was in prison, he wrote, just wrote letters to his church. He was a pastor, actually. He wrote letters to his family. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff that, we, that he's written. Uh, one of the most important books that he had ever written, he actually penned in prison during this period of time when John Owen was trying desperately to get him free and never worked. It, didn't, it was always unsuccessful. The, the, the guy that was in prison was John Bunyan, and the book that he was writing was Pilgrim's Progress. Outside of the Bible, there's, there's no more red book than Pilgrim's Progress. 
But if John Owen had succeeded in getting John Bunyan out of prison, the book probably would have never been written. And yet God was working through the bitter providence of John Bunyan and all the unsuccessful attempts of John Owen to get him out of prison so that he could write this book that would go on being read by countless generations for hundreds of years. We don't always understand what God's doing in our lives. We really don't. What we do know is what we can read from the Bible and what we've seen God do in people's lives, preeminently the life of his own son, that God has good purposes for those who trust him. I want to read you guys uh, a song. I promise I won't sing it. I'll read it. It's written by a guy named uh, William Cooper. Um, I'll have Chris coming up, and he'll get ready to lead us in some worship. Um, William Cooper actually became a Christian in, in a sane asylum. The guy um, was always depressed, several times tried to commit suicide, um, and he struggled throughout his whole life with incredible depression. And he wrote, I think, one of the most amazing songs probably ever written, in my opinion. It's one of my favorite songs. I go back to it often. Uh, it's called God Works in Mysterious Ways. I want to read it to you because this song actually portrays beautifully this, this picture of God's goodness with God's sovereignty. Just, just listen to it, and then what we'll do is we'll respond in worship and song, partaking of communion. Let somebody says. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God, we thank you for guys who struggled with incredible depression that could somehow squeeze words together to say things like that. God, we confess that um, in, in our blind unbelief, we're always sure to err. And, and we, we look at your works and we make judgments upon those immediate works. And God, most of the time, if not always, our judgments are always in vain. They're always too short-sighted. They're always inaccurate, incomplete, based upon a lot of lack of knowledge and wisdom. And God, when everything in your word always points us back to a God who's actually working all things in our life for our good. God, you, you brought Ruth into Naomi's life to leverage blessing upon blessing for this bereft, widowed, broken, fragile, identity-less woman. In the same way, God, 
who have worked through Jesus to leverage blessing into our life, who are broken, hurting, destroyed people outside of you who are desperately trying to cling on to just any type of vestment of identity that we can just hold on to. And it's crushing us. It's crushing us. That's what sin does, is it crushes us. It oppresses us. It becomes a, an evil tyrant over us and crushes and ruins us. And yet, God, you come in as a deliverer and you set us free, just like you did Naomi. You set us free. We thank you, God, that we can look at a life like Ruth and Naomi and see a hand of a very big God who's not weak and who's not lacking any love but who's all powerful and all loving and is working all things together for our good so that we would find joy in you and that your glory we synced up with our joy so God we worship you now we confess sin to you now we partake of the communion, God, now to remember the fact that even through great torment, the torment of your son, even that was worked out for good, our good. So God, we just sing and worship and rejoice in you now.